This podcast is brought to you by Poker Rags. We dress poker players. Poker Rags sells comfortable clothing that's smart, funny, cool, and good for the game. Go to pokerrags.us. Hey, I'm Ryan, and welcome to another episode of the Playing High Stakes Poker Podcast. Everything you've always wanted to know about playing from mid to the highest stakes. Charlie Wilmoth is a cash game player in Los Angeles, musician, and the host of the Third Man Walking podcast. Enjoy my conversation with Charlie. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Well, it's so great having you here. When I first started thinking about this a few months ago, I was just going back and forth thinking, how do I want to do this? What format would be the best? And could I even get people on the show? I've done some podcasts in the past, but there's all these things that you're thinking about before you launch something. And so I was so happy that you are going to be the first guest on the show I reached out and you agreed. Uh, so really happy to have you here. Oh, awesome. That's that's an honor. Yeah. So for a lot of people are going to be familiar with you, but for people who don't know, let's first just get into your podcast a little bit before we start talking a little more broadly about poker, Third Man Walking. First off, why? how did the name come about? Third man walking is a is a poker term. Um, it, it if you're not familiar with it, it's because it doesn't really exist in LA. But uh. it it means basically that that when there are two people up from the table at a cash game table, a third person can only get up for a limited amount of time, and if they exceed that amount of time, then their chips will be picked up. And basically, it's a rule to keep keep games going when they start to get shorthanded. Uh, but it doesn't have any. That the rule itself doesn't have any particular significance for me. It, but it just sounded it was a poker term, and it sounded like it sounded sort of lonely to me. And uh, it it echoed for me the way I feel like poker is this lonely journey that we have to take on our own. Like we, you know, we have our friends in poker, and we have people that wish the best for us. But ultimately, we're all out for us for ourselves. And and when we get dealt a hand, we have to play the hand by ourselves. Uh, that is really cool. I like the name. I like hearing the explanation. Definitely new to me. Hopefully it will be new or not hopefully, but hopefully people will learn, learn about the term who, if they didn't know already who are LA based uh, like I am. And I know you are too. Uh, really interesting. So let's get into the podcast a little bit. You have so many great episodes and there's so many great resources for people who are learning, thinking about making that jump, maybe to playing professionally or kind of semi-professionally. There's people out there who are definitely grinding and maybe supplementing their income. Maybe they haven't kind of gone full-time yet, but there's so many great podcasts I listen to, and there's a few specific ones I wanted to kind of get in and ask you about, and you, we can elaborate on, but just from a high level you know, the podcast is playing high stakes poker. What does high stakes mean to you? And even even mid stakes as you're kind of grinding in LA kind of present day right now? Well, I, I mean, 
I don't know if most people would say that I play high stakes poker. Certainly I, I have played, I have played high stakes poker at times. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm playing a lot of five ten, some five ten twenty, those kinds of games. I don't know if you would say those are high stakes, but, uh, they're, you know, there's, they're, you know, certainly getting there. And yeah, it's kind of funny because it, it, it feels like there's all these things pushing against it. There's just private games, popping up everywhere be they underground games that are illegal or debatably illegal and then also increasingly private games in casinos that there's just all kinds of of politics involved with with getting into those games and being able to stay in them and then also there's what seems like more and more pros pros coming in from out of town pros coming in from europe and and australia and brazil and japan and it would seem like all those things would be making it more difficult to play mid stakes or whatever you would call the games i play for a living but i i, I mean it seems like poker is still great i mean since the pandemic it's really been good and i think that the pandemic really brought a lot of people back into the game or into the game who were not there for a while or not there before at all. And so I don't know. I mean, despite all the factors working against live public cash games right now, things seem great. And I think I just parroted some of that from my friend, Mark Goon, I think from an episode of my podcast, but he's right. I mean, in spite of everything that's working against people who are making their livings in public poker games right now, things are really good. Yeah, no, de- that definitely. And I know you played on live at the bike. There's a stream of you playing. I think it was, well, yeah. What, what was the, what were the stakes in that game that you played the higher stakes game that was on live at the bike? Um, I, the biggest game I played on live at the bike was, I think it was listed as like 25, 25, 50, but there was a hundred dollar straddle the whole time. I also played their ante game a lot, which was, uh, five, five with a $50 big blind ante. Okay. Yeah. And I'll link that, uh, the one in the show notes of the higher stakes game. It was a really interesting one to watch. What do you think is the separation between playing, let's say something like two, five or even five, five and making that jump to five, five, 10 or kind of those more mid to higher stakes. Yeah. I mean, the, the players are just better and the, the money is, is bigger. And I, I think that as you're, you're moving up from one stake to a higher one, you, you will think that player skill will be the biggest difference and that it is different. But I don't think that's the biggest difference. I think it's it's more about getting used to the swings and being able to weather the swings and being able to run a big bluff if you need to, being able to make a big call down if you think it's appropriate, and not just defaulting to the lowest variance option every chance you get. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And these days you're playing five five ten cash mainly. Is that right? Uh, it depends, you know, yeah, some, some five ten, some, some five ten twenty. Um, and okay. if there, if there are other games that are good, then I'll play those two. I mean, the, the ten twenty game at commerce, if that game looks good, I'll sit down, but, uh, it, it frequently does not look that good. Yeah. And obviously I know table selection and factors of what time you're playing. And there's so many things that come into play. 
How have you been able to deal with tilt and deal with variance? I know that's probably one of the biggest things. What are some of the things that you you do to deal with the variance and and manage it and manage those swings, especially as you are going into those higher games that you mentioned? Um, one is just keeping in mind that this is my job and that sometimes the nature of the job of playing poker professionally is that you're going to lose money. And sometimes your role in the casino playing poker that day is to lose money in the most responsible way possible uh, and to not start tilting and making bad calls or making ridiculous bluffs that are never going to work because you're trying to force things, you know, just, just keeping in mind that, you know, you play, you say, say you play five ten. It's natural and normal to have days where you're you're going to lose $2,000, $4,000. And it's on you not to make that $5,000 or $6,000 or $7,000 or to take that $3,000 loss and be able to stay in a game that's good and maybe get back $1,500 of that by the time the day is over. That's that, that's just part of your role as a professional poker player. And another thing I've, I've found helpful is just having had um i started playing cash games seriously in 2015 and went you know quit my last job in 2018 and uh you know keeping in mind that you know i've had success for a while i mean not not any grand success i'm not you know bragging it's not a big deal but when you can look back on okay in 2019 i did this well. And in 2021, I did this well. And, and you just have a track record where you know that things are going to be fine. And the, the times I've struggled with tilt the most were the times when I was least confident. And I, I think of a stretch when I first moved to LA, I was making some bad adjustments to LA games. And I had a year or so where I wasn't doing too well. And I, I was, that was, that was when tilt was hardest for me because in addition to losing however much money I might lose on a particular day, I also had to be like, you know, am I in the right job here? Am I going to be able to keep doing this? And I'm, am I going to still be doing this in two years? And I think that if you can, uh, you know, having, having sort of settled into a pattern at this point where I've been doing it for a while, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be able to keep doing it for a while after this, it makes the day-to-day -day ups and downs a lot easier. Yeah, that's a great answer. Let's talk a little bit about the quote, winning is boring. And you had this as a title of one of your podcasts and talked a little bit about it. It's something I sometimes think about when trying to make all the right decisions and sometimes almost going on tilt and kind of catching myself and just realizing that, you know, it, it when you are winning and you are making the right decisions, it can get boring and it can seem monotonous. And, uh, you know, on the flip side of the coin, you talked a little bit about losing and you can explain it better than me. Well, I think when you're, when you're losing, you about it, yeah. it's, it's weird. Maybe this is a, People really seem to relate to this episode. So I, I think some aspects of it were sort of personal, but I, I think that some of it was also sort of universal. Like when I'm when I'm losing, I really feel it. And I mean, I, I 
feel the swirl of emotions. I, you know, I feel, you know, like the taste of like metal in my mouth for some reason. I can sometimes if I'm like standing up and taking a walk around the casino after, you know, taking a really brutally bad beat, I can feel things swirl around a little bit. I'm very aware of how things look, you know, from a, uh, you know, the, the, the colors and I, I, I'm my, my sense, my senses are heightened. Um, and so when I'm, I'm losing, I, I feel that really deeply. And I can, if, if I'm thinking about, you know, drives home on the way back from the casino after a, a particularly bad session in the midst of a string of bad sessions, that, that has a, a very palpable feeling to me. Whereas when I'm winning, I'm I'm never you know sad to be winning, obviously. But there is a sense in which, like you know, a, a lot of times if you're you know a winning player, there are just a lot of hands where you just pick up aces or you flop a set or whatever, and then you you bet and then you shove the river or whatever and get called and you turn over your hand and you don't even see what your opponent had, and you're just like, yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's it's kind of anticlimactic in a way, and of, of course that's what you want, but uh, it's it, it is kind of weird when you have a sustained upswing and it can almost feel like nothing's happening because your your senses are no longer heightened in that way. Yeah, I like that a lot. I I love the episode, and I'll link it here in the show notes. People should definitely revisit it. Anyone who studied behavioral economics or behavioral finance knows that research shows losing hurts a lot more than winning. Is that something that you notice for yourself? Let's say, you know, when you win, you have X amount of, of happiness or elation. And then when you lose, it's you know, like 10 times worse. I, I think you you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that was backed up by research, but that makes a lot of sense to me. And yes, I mean, poker players talk about that a lot, that that losing feels worse than winning feels good. And the, like I said, I've, I've, I've worked to kind of iron that out. And I think to some extent I have ironed that out and can go on, uh, you know, a little bit of a downswing and it's not that big a deal, but as a default state, yes, that's absolutely the case in, in, in poker that, that losing hurts a lot more. And, you know, it's, it's especially tough as a, somebody who doesn't really do anything else for a living because yeah, you, you'll have like a losing stretch for, you know, a while. I mean, in live poker, they can go on for a while or a break even stretch that goes on for a couple months. And if poker is what you're doing with your life, it's, it can feel like, wow. I mean, what it feels, it all feels so meaningless. I mean, what am I doing with my life? But it's all part of the process. And you, you have to, you know, again, part of the job is to ride out these difficult stretches in and minimum and minimize them the best you can. And the money you save by not completely blowing up your bankroll when you're running bad is money you'll still have when you start running good again. And you can't turn around a downswing by doing anything other than playing through it. So, you know, you just have to keep fighting and you have to find little ways to make the worst aspects of variance more sustainable for yourself. Or you have to quit playing, which, you know, for some people is, is maybe what they should do. I mean, I don't know. 
Yeah, and I'd like to reference a couple episodes of your podcasts. One is the most recent one discussing a little bit about questioning why certain pros are are doing certain things and kind of the decisions that they're making. I thought that was really interesting. And another one, which was a podcast, I think from a couple of years ago now, or going back a little bit with Mark Goon on navigating the higher stakes environment, which was just a really great episode talking about so many different things, but you guys touched on kind of, you know, making poker your career, as you just mentioned a minute ago, of there are all these different things come into play. Uh, and some people, maybe they should just go out and, and get an office job or whatever the case, some type of job like that, making, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 grand a year, what X amount, whatever it is. And, and they might be better off. Um, you know, they might they might still have a boss, or the, and they might have certain. They have to give up some of the things about the poker lifestyle. But nowadays, you know, you can work flex flexible. You can be remote. There's there's different things that come into play there. So, so from a high level, let's let's first just start with the last episode there of of why pros are doing doing certain things. I, I thought that was you made some really interesting comments. Yeah. I, and it's interesting. You link those two episodes together uh, because they they do have a lot in common. Mark talks a lot about the politics of, of high stakes games in that episode. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I see, you know, you might sit down at a five ten table and think, okay, I mean, there are three other people at this table who, you know, might be playing professionally, but then you think, well, but, I never, I don't really see this person very often, this person who I think might be a professional or, you know, I see this person a lot, but they are always playing in the worst games and I don't understand why they're doing that. And so it it just seems like people are making a lot of suboptimal decisions about what to play. And, you know, I, I, I try to find some potential reasons why they might be doing that. And I, I think that, you know, one reason why there might be a good player who you don't actually see that much of is because they were maybe playing more to make more money at a certain point, but then they started running a business or they're, you know, taking classes to do something. So I I think it's pretty common for poker players to uh, use their time playing poker to build toward another career. And I think that is mostly a good thing to do if, if people want to do that. So that's one possibility. But I, I think also just ego is a huge thing in poker. People don't want to, you know, switch tables or move down to a lower stake because they want to keep fighting against the people they have at their table, or they want to be seen as a ten twenty player or a five ten player instead of as a five ten player or a two five or five five player or whatever. When they could make more money at those lower stakes, and the the group of players that is maybe most interesting. To, to look at that um, that phenomenon is a lot of the lesser pros coming in internationally because, you know, if I think somebody's pretty good at poker, but they live here in LA and I don't talk to them regularly, I mean, they may be doing all, all kinds of other things and not even really need an income from poker. You know, they may just have a, a job or a business that they're starting in LA or, or whatever. Whereas somebody who's coming to the casino, who's coming to Los Angeles from, you know, 
London or uh, Bucharest or, or uh, you know, Tokyo or wherever, they're just here for six weeks or three months. And presumably they're most of them are just here to play poker. And I see a lot of them making the same kinds of mistakes. So it's, you know, I, I don't want them to stop making these mistakes, but I, I do think it's interesting that I just see them all the time, that that ego appears to be driving a lot of them and that the desire to be cool or the desire to be the person that plays this stake rather than this stake is driving them as well. Yeah. How do you think about t the time of day you're playing at night versus during the day? Obviously on at night you have, you know, Friday night, you have Saturday, Sunday, there's a different type of player. There's, there's people who are going to have fun, drink a few beers, <laughs> maybe punt off a few hundred bucks, whatever the case is during, you know, on a Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday at noon, there might be less of that type of person. There still are here in LA, I think actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I feel like there's more grinders playing, especially let's say in the morning or, or early afternoon. How do you think about that dynamic and how, and how do you navigate that? That's an interesting question. I, I mean, I think that there are a lot of markets where if you want to play poker seriously, you have to play, um, you know, Friday night or Saturday night or wherever, or, you know, Sunday during the day, mm -hmm. Columbus, Ohio, where I used to live is like that. I mean, there's, you, you can play one, two game on, you know, Monday at, at noon or whatever, but you, you can't find a game where you can really make significant money. LA, it's different. And that's one of the really nice things about living here is you can go to play 510 on, you know, Monday at 10 a.m. And there will be people there. I think the daytime games are, can be, can be pretty good, especially earlier in the day. Um, the, the, I don't, I don't know how, how deeply I want to get into this, but they, they're, there are certain hours, I would say like the late afternoon, um, when there, there really is a high concentration of grinders. And then, uh, you know, it, it probably gets a lot better again at night. Yeah. Uh, I mostly play during the day and into the early evening. And I, I am probably giving up some win rate to do that, but it's nice for me, you know, to keep a relatively normal schedule and have, you know, be able to, you know, talk to my girlfriend before she goes to sleep and, and that kind of thing. So I, I really value that. And that's something that's sort of unique to LA poker and a few other markets that you get to do something like that. But yeah, it probably, if you had to make a schedule, it probably would be, you know, late nights would be the best time to play. Yeah. What's your split of studying and going into the lab, so to speak, versus playing? Do you have a kind of percentage split that you try to focus on, or is it does it vary by the by the season and and how you're doing, or how do you think about that? Uh, I I don't have um, particular aspirations. Uh, I have a study group that I meet with uh, once a week. Um, I have some students and I review, I spend a lot of time reviewing their hands, which, you know, is, is not directly studying myself, but which I do think helps me get better. And, uh, I, I text with a bunch of friends throughout the day and then 
run Sims on hands when I get home. But I, you know, could I, I don't know if I, if I could even tell you exactly how many hours I spend studying in a particular week. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I'm doing something every week. It probably waxes and wanes because, you know, studying is not linear. And, you know, honestly, there are, there are times when I come home and I, I will like want to do something and not know precisely what to do. And there are also times when I discover something new and am, am very motivated and know exactly what to do for quite a number of hours to figure it out. Yeah, I like that answer. It, it does make a lot of sense. For people who are tracking all of their data and being diligent about record keeping, what do you think is the optimal number of hours in order to kind of figure out where they are as far as win rate and those type of things? Sometimes I hear 500, 1,000 people throw out these kind of arbitrary numbers, but from your perspective, what what do you think is, is the right kind of range? It depends on so many factors. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, whether you're playing live or online is obviously a huge one. I mean, if let's you're playing, say, let's let's say live. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. yeah. So even within that, there's there's a lot to sort of figure out. I mean, do you play capped games or uncapped? Mm -hmm. Do you have? Are you in the kind of market where games are very consistent, or is it the kind of market where? You play small stakes games, except one day a week, one really big game pops off and some crazy whale sits down and punts $10,000. I mean, that that kind of dynamic could really affect someone's win rate quite a lot, even over the course of, of 500 or 1,000 hours. I, I mean, and I, and it's it's also so hard to say because your level of ability will wax and wane also. And there have been times in my career as a poker player where I thought I was doing things well and was just running bad and then realized later on that I was actually making significant mistakes. And so I think that your poker game is, is always like this, you know, really complicated machine that needs to be serviced in material in mysterious ways every once in a while, you know, and it's, and so it's, it's really hard to say that, that 500 hours is enough or, a thousand hours. I, I a student asked a similar question just this week, and I said two years. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, two, two thousand, three thousand hours, probably. Yeah, and that's playing full time. Two well, years. whatever so part time whatever. to full time. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever two thousand or three thousand hours is, yeah. but but right. I mean, you know, a, a year and a half, two years. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not going to ask you about bankroll because I heard on your podcast how you, how you said the exact same thing where there's just too many factors <laughs> in order to to kind of advise people on well, that. Well, right. I mean, it's, people, it's, people, people like, made a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, people like to give, you know, you need however many dollars to play one, two. And it's like, well, what kind of one, two game? And, you know, how good are you? And yeah, are, are you sitting with 200 big blinds or... 500 you know it uh, just so many things go into that so uh it's it's really hard to say i mean my general advice about that is just you know ha have more than you think you need i guess yeah not, not only because you might run out of it but because it allows you to play better yeah i think that's great advice and i think what people should take out of this is it's not 
just an arbitrary number that you read online or these numbers that you see, like you need, you know, 50 buy-ins or 100 or whatever, whatever the case is. It's just, you really have to look at yourself and look at all of these other factors in order for you to come up with kind of the number that that's right for you as far as buy, uh, bankrolls and buy-ins. And then also tracking all your progress, the number of hours. Um, like you said, it, there are so many factors that come into play. So I think that that's something people should take away is that it really is specific. So instead of following just one rule that you see online or that you read somewhere in a book or an online course, then you should really kind of be a little bit more uh, specific about it and, and kind of take each advice that you've heard, each piece of advice you've heard with a grain of salt type of thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, know what your natural tendencies are and fight against them a little bit. If you're naturally really conservative about taking shots in higher games, I think it's good to keep in mind that when you see, uh, you know, a game at the stake bigger than yours, you know, assuming you're winning at the stake you're currently playing, that looks good then it's okay to, you know, set aside four or five buy-ins in your usual stake and take a shot in the bigger one, as long as you're willing to move back down. But if you're the kind of person who wants to constantly gamble and take shots, I mean, be aware that that can lead you to go broke. And um, so you, you have to fight against that tendency a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Let's get into the streaming world a little bit. You're a commentator on Hustler Casino Live. Once in a while, you just recently commentated um, a really interesting one. Bart Hansen was playing, Alec Torelli, handful of other people. They Those two both got caught up in a really interesting hand where Alec almost uh, got a bluff, bluff through. And uh, Bart was really in the tank for, for a long time and made the call. Um, I can link it here in the show notes. People, people should go back and, and watch the whole stream if, if you have time. It definitely that hand. What do you think broadly about the streaming ecosystem here in LA? Live at the bike, Hustler Casino Live now. What do you think about the about the broad ecosystem overall? Huh. How how, um, how how it's changing how it's changing poker is it is it helping people become better players is it uh growing the game out you know for other people who maybe had a small interest in poker people talk about kind of the money maker effect do you think we could see kind of another wave of that with streaming there, there's so many different kind of ways I think about it but those are just a few I mean I think that uh another moneymaker type situation is unlikely in that form. But I, I think we're seeing a mini poker boom. It's already been happening for for two or three years at this point. I mean, basically since the start of the pandemic. And stream games are a big part of that. Hustler Casino Live is, you know, recently a huge part of that. Um because you know it, it's a really entertaining product that that really makes poker seem fun and i think that all the availability of games including some really sketchy app games that i don't necessarily endorse have had a huge role in bringing people back to the game i mean i think vlogs are a big part of that as well and you you hear people at the table who are clearly you know, there to play poker for fun 
coming and playing 5-5 or 5-10 and talking about Mariano or talking about Brad Owen. So I, I think there's there's just a bunch of things working for poker right now. And there are seemingly a lot more people playing a lot, certainly a lot more people playing higher stakes than they used to. And yeah, I mean, Hustle Casino Live is just obviously a, a huge, huge part of that. Yeah. And let's hear a little bit about your experience commentating on high stakes games. How has it been for you? I, it's like you said, it's kind of just a rocket ship right now. They get so many streams. I love watching the show. Each night is a little bit different. Obviously, they have the Max Payne Monday, the anti-game kind of during the week, those few games culminating in the the high stakes game, usually on Fridays. But how's it been for you as a commentator? And I think being that, able to sit in that seat. I, I love it. Um Mostly because, you know, one thing that's weird about playing poker for a living is that you're not, you're not really doing anything. Like if you're a farmer, you, you, you know, you make food and then people eat the food. Um, poker is not productive in that way. And that's, that's a sort of strange thing about it that, um, you know, I, I've wrestled with at various points because I really do love it, but it is strange, especially, especially when you're not doing well to feel like you're not really making anything. And, you know, I, I think that like being able to be involved with, with Hustle Casino Live is for me, like just an amazing way to be a part of poker culture and be a part of Los Angeles culture also. You know, I moved here five years and um, five years ago and and Los Angeles was in many ways, like a dream city for me to live, live in. I, I love living here and I, I love playing some small part of what makes the city vibrant, you know? And, uh, I think playing five ten day to day, as much as I love doing it, doesn't do that for me. It's, you know, it's being part of, of something like Hustler Casino Live that, that really does that for me. I mean, even, even the podcasts are, are, um, I, I really like making those two, but they're very personal. Whereas Hustler Casino Live is like this huge thing that 7,000 people are watching at once or, or 15,000 people. And that's, you know, amazing to be a part of. Yeah. And you mentioned people, recreational players who have possibly been drawn in and get more excited about playing from watching the vlogs do you think that the watching vlogs and even watching the streams has contributed to helping people become better players or I guess it also depends on the player as well, but, or do you think that's, that's not probably something that is a thing, let's say. I mean, I think you, you certainly can become better educated about poker by watching streams or, or, or watching vlogs. Um, but I, I think that that is not what most viewers of those things are doing, um, whether they yeah. think that's what they're doing or not. Uh, you know, a, a very common thing among certain types of recreational players, probably at all stakes at this point, is just a hand will end and then they'll use a bunch of poker terms. So it's clear that they're studying something, but they're not really using them correctly. Um, and certainly not applying them correctly when it comes to their play. And 
you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that it's, you know, they're still watching vlogs or whatever, and it's still like jogging things in their mind. It probably is on some level making them smarter and it probably is on some level making them better at poker, but uh, will it help them like put all the pieces together without additional help of some kind? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that really makes a lot of sense. I think it's definitely player dependent and, and most people are watching for entertainment, I think, which is great. And you brought up the the point about, we're probably not going to see another moneymaker boom. I think, I mean, I wanted to ask I, maybe just wrapping up a little bit just on the LA ecosystem or and, and then just maybe asking you, obviously you've kind of carved out a, a niche playing 510, like we talked about 5510, 51020, whatever, but aspirations to play in, in, in bigger games or take shots. Do you have do you ha have any or otherwise that's something we won't discuss? Well, I mean, I, I have I have taken shots in bigger games. Mm -hmm. And uh if given opportunities. Will I take those shots in the future? Yes. Um, is that something that's very natural for me? No, it isn't. Uh, for a bunch of reasons. One is, as I talk about on the recent episode of the podcast, there's there's just naturally so much politics involved with high stakes games. A lot of the highest stakes games happening now are happening underground. There are all kinds of negatives associated with that. Um, a lot of the pros who are getting into those games and maybe doing well in those games are pretending not to be pros. And, you know, it's it's pretty common. You'll hear of like somebody who you know is a really good player, you know, putting on a dumb hat or uh, something like that um, or adopting language that they would not normally use like that, those sorts of things, basically pretending to be somebody else in order to get into higher stakes games. And that seems hard to me, like just on a, I don't know what the word is like ontological level. That seems really difficult and I don't want to do that. Um, and a, a lot of high stakes opportunities have something like that attached. So I, I don't know. I mean, if if I can, to the extent that I'm able to find good games that are higher stakes than I play now that aren't like that, then yes, I, I will do that. But I'm also pretty happy at the moment where I'm at. And I think that poker is always a challenge. It's even if, even if you're in a, a, you know, some one, two game, where your win rate is something ridiculous, like 30, 30 big blinds an hour or something. I don't know if there's any one, two players that have win rates that high, but there, there might be. But even if, even if you're there, there's, there's always, you're always going to find ways of asking yourself, can I get it to 32? Can I get it to 35? Did, you know, in that, that hand I played against that crazy guy, could I have maybe bet bigger on the turn to make sure stacks got in on the river? Could I have found a bluff against that tighter player that I didn't find in the game. There's just, you know, you never get to be perfect at it. And it doesn't even really matter what stakes you play. 
there's always a challenge there. Yeah, one of your mantras, or I don't know if you, you would call it your mantra, but I think you mentioned it was, is that we don't know anything. I heard that in one of your podcasts. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the things that the the best players think they know about poker right now, I mean, uh, some of them obviously are just going to be objectively true at this point, especially, I mean, maybe not so much like 15 years ago, but definitely at this point, like the, the, the tools we have to learn about poker are, have gotten good enough that there are certain things about poker that we know are true, but those ideas will change a lot. Um, and a, a lot of the, the ways we have of, of sort of quantifying the value of various decisions in poker right now, a lot of the tools we use like solvers, um, there are so many ways to burrow deep down into those tools to get better at beating live games, for example, where it's it's really hard to even model most of the hands because there's always some complicating dynamic. So, you know, you, you want to, you know, study a sim for some hand that you played against a reg, you know, you can do that, but you have to keep in mind that maybe the regs range for free betting the button is going to be different because there was uh, a very splashy recreational player in the big blind or something like that. There's always something going on in live poker that cuts against our ability to quantify things perfectly. So in a sense, you know, we don't really know what's going on and, and because our opponent's cards are hidden from us, we don't necessarily know who the big winners are exactly. I mean, you know what I mean? Or, or who is make, well, we might know that, but we don't know if there are a lot of players who I talked about in the, in the podcast, when they, they cross this low threshold of, of, of competence where they're aggressive and they're not making completely spewy decisions. We don't really know exactly at that point how good they are because we don't see a lot of their showdowns a lot. And we don't know what they think they know about our opponents. You know, we might see them turn over some hand that looks a little bit silly to us, but they might know something about the person they played it with that we don't know. So there's just all these unknowns in poker that that resist complete quantization. Yeah, that kind of made me think about the term leveling. Mm. And... I was listening to a podcast recently talking about how leveling was was kind of the big thing many years ago in poker. And you're thinking what I'm thinking, but I know that you're thinking this, so I should do this. And then when solvers came into play, a lot of that went away. I feel like as you move up in stakes, it is the leveling really does come more into play because you know you you're playing with better players and they're 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 using that second level thinking second third fourth level how do you think about that is that something that you feel is is applicable or is do you have to think about it more when you're playing against a pro or someone you know is a better player compared to an amateur where you know they're not even thinking that way well, if it's a heads-up hand against another, if it's a heads-up hand against a good player, then I think that actually there's maybe a little bit less leveling involved because 
there is, according to theory, there are, according to theory, certain ways that things should go. Mm-hmm. And if you get too deep into the leveling war against somebody who's just playing good poker, you're probably going to end up owning yourself. And theory gives you pretty good guardrails to make sure that you're not doing anything too ridiculous and and leaving yourself open to just getting destroyed by someone who's just playing well. I think where leveling can come into play a lot is is where is in, for example you you're playing a hand against a good player on the turn but there was a whale in the hand on the flop and both you and the other good player in the hand knew something you know had a certain understanding about what was going on in the flop based on the fact that the the recreational player was in there and that then affects things on the turn in a way that is kind of complicated or maybe you're playing against um somebody who's a, a thinking smart person but who's tilted or you suspect is sort of thinking too deeply about the leveling war themselves and you can kind of just jump into that for a second and get inside their head a little bit. I mean, that that's pretty com- That's a pretty common type of, of recreational player at, at 510. Somebody who is very smart and driven, but is, is maybe leaning a little bit too hard on these kinds of, of meta wars or things they imagine are going on rather than just playing well, because you know, if you're in hand against me and I've four bet you, or you know, maybe not four bet, if I three bet you four times in the past hour, you know, you might think that I'm picking on you, but I'm probably not. You know, I probably just had good hands that whole time. And it just happened to be against you. And you mistake variance for some dynamic developing. And if I can anticipate how you might think about that, then maybe there's some advantage for me to glean there. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That that kind of brings up some points that I didn't I didn't think about before, and hopefully be helpful for others. Lastly, here playing here in LA, sometimes all here on the table. I just heard this recently. This guy was complaining about the action here, and the action is so much better in Vegas. And sometimes I'll hear. <laughs> People talk about you know, there, there's too many pros in Vegas, and, and sometimes you hear the opposite, and there, there's so many fish in the uh, conventions and everything. What do you think about the differences between the LA ecosystem versus versus Las Vegas in kind of that that mid mid stakes range? Call it you know five 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 ten five ten twenty, but it, those type of games that run uh, are always running. This is such an interesting question. So I, I, I think that that um, by and large the LA games are much better. Um, now, that's not to say the players in Vegas are great, um, but they are tighter. There are certain things you can do at a table uh, to exploit players who are too tight in certain spots that you're not going to be able to do in LA, which is interesting and a different sort of challenge. But as far as like the number of dollars an hour you can win, I, I think you can do much better in LA. I mean. The, the thing that cuts against that, of course, is that it's much, it's much more expensive to live in LA. And so you can be a professional player on a little bit less money in Las Vegas. But I mean, I think that as far as markets to play poker go, neither 
Las Vegas nor LA is where it's at right now. I mean, there's all these things happening in uh, Texas, in small markets, throughout the country, basically. I mean, there's there's big games seemingly popping off everywhere. And it, it can be tricky in some of the smaller markets because these games don't run every day, don't run you know 18 hours a day they, the way they do in, in Las, Las Vegas or LA. But you have all these games in smaller markets throughout the country that are labeled as 5-5 games or 2-5 games or whatever, but then they're uncapped and there's $10 straddles, $20 straddles, $40 straddles, and they're just massive games. And so, you know, it's weird because I, I love living in LA, but if I didn't have any real preference about where to live, um, I, I might well head to one of these lower, these lesser known poker markets, because there are a lot of games going on throughout the country that, that really are much better than, than Los Angeles and Las Vegas, which are largely known quantities that pros and especially pros from outside the country already know about. Yeah. And I know you discussed a little bit about that on one of your podcasts. People should definitely check that out. One of the episodes uh, that was a really good conversation too, um, a good monologue. Charlie, this has been really fun. Why don't you tell people how they can uh, interact with you, see all your content, et cetera. We'll link the podcast. We'll link the YouTube uh, Hustler Casino Live that you commentated. But how else can people uh, follow your work? Um, you can find me on Twitter at third walking. That's third T H I R D walking. And, uh, there's a link there to, um, my page at crush life poker that hosts all the podcasts, or you can just go to crushlifepoker.com. Right. And the last question I wanted to ask before I forget, I want to, I, in my past podcast, I always wrapped up with one question I would ask every guest. So I was just thinking, well, what's something fun, and the one I came up with, we'll see if it sticks, is have you ever folded kings uh, pre-flop before in a cash game? Oh, yeah. So many times. Um, yes. I mean, okay. <laughs> I you know, I, I, I've just, I remember hearing, I think Daniel Negreanu like years and years ago saying like, oh, I'll never fold kings pre-flop. And it's like, that's mm -hmm. cool. You know, you can't go too wrong, <laughs> but there, but he's probably playing in very different kinds of games than I'm playing in. And I, you know, there's just lots of players I've played against that I have hundreds of hours against and have just never seen them four bet with anything other than aces. So yeah, if one of those players four bets me and I'm not getting a, a price to, to call and flop a set, I'll fold Kings, you know, and, and there are, yeah, there have been many times when that has happened. I try not to make a habit of it, obviously, but if I, you know, I just don't think somebody has that move in them with anything but aces, then the only thing to do is fold. I love that answer. And anyone who's been felted with Kings versus Aces for a huge stack uh, can definitely relate. Charlie, this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, leave a quick review on iTunes with some feedback and give a five-star rating. You can find us on Twitter at playing HS Poker. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.